This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Connecting people working for cultural democracy in Europe and America, this is a culture of possibility. With Arlene Goldbard and Francois Matarasso. Welcome to the 10th episode of the podcast, A Culture of Possibility, which was created by Francois Matarasso and myself, Arlene Goldbard. Francois is taking a little break, but I'm very happy to be talking to you from Lamy, New Mexico, which is just outside of Santa Fe in the American Southwest, and talking to my dear old friend, Gary Stewart, who's not so old, but whom I've known for a long time. Gary, can you introduce yourself, please? Thank you for inviting me to um, to chat. My name is Gary Stewart. I live in the UK. I have a studio in London and would describe myself as, first and foremost, an artist. I'm also a producer, which means I have to kind of finance and plan and coordinate various aspects of projects as well. And indeed, I'm also a curator carrying out relevant research and project creation. And research is something that plays a really prominent role in a lot of my work. I was born in the UK in the early 60s to Jamaican parents who arrived in Britain in the late 50s. And I grew up in inner city Birmingham in an area called Borsal Heath. This area was uh, an area where people from the former British Empire, that is the Caribbean, Indian and Pakistani communities were. And in fact, the sort of like English white community were the minority. Uh, my mother was a nurse and a single parent and she had a huge appetite for learning and she loved books and music. It's something that I always remembered about her. And she sort of like recognised in me that uh, I liked making things. I was always fiddling with stuff like many kids. I would take things apart and not put them back together properly. But with the very few resources that she had, she sort of like nurtured my creative interests. And amongst other things, I, I, I do have fond memories of uh, uh, the Meccano modeling building kit, Lego, microscope. And, and she just continually sort of like fed my interest. Um, she also made going to the library each week an absolute delight. There was nothing better than churning through my five books and getting another five books at the library. It just became part of a kind of uh, really pleasurable routine and it just seemed really quite normal to me. Um, my older brother also saw in me how curious I was and he bought me a, um, a sort of electronic uh, building kit, a construction kit one Christmas. And this kit enabled me to create things like basic radios, transmitters, mods, code keys and stuff like that. And I don't even remember that Christmas. I, I spent a whole, the whole period up in a tree with just rigging up wires to make antennae and all this kind of stuff. My, my whole world literally just exploded in terms of, you know, the terms of possibilities and excitement. I took a specialist exam at uh, age 11 to gain entry into a, a secondary art grammar school, which was the only one of its kind in the whole country. This school was a, a specialised school that did art. Your course, maths and English were 
mandatory, but again, it just seemed quite normal to me. I just thought every school was like that, but it was an extraordinary place. And um, But as I uh, went through the years there, I also developed a really interest in physics and maths and showed a great aptitude for that as well. I was kind of the odd one out. There was sort of uh, the nerd, so to speak. I <laughs> um, wasn't interested in girls or socialising. I was pretty much um, interested in my own company. I just liked exploring and looking at things and, um, and figuring them out. Like a lot of young people at that time, I was in a chess club. I don't think I was particularly good. It was just the thing you did. And then when I got to the end of my sixth form, I did A-levels in um, art, art history, uh, maths and physics. And I had no idea what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to do art or science. I was passionate about both of them. And so rather than feeling empowered, it actually... Uh, instilled in me a state of absolute complete confusion what am I going to do Um, at that time I believe the only way to really reconcile that was to do architecture or industrial design I I think I went to see an industrial design course somewhere in Coventry and I didn't like it I don't know why I didn't pursue the architecture thing I don't think I was particularly mature I just know that I loved arts and sciences Anyway, I ended up at um, Tread Polytechnic in Nottingham studying electronics and computing. I spent all of my time in the art department just across the road. And in fact, people in the, art, in the arts faculty thought I did art, but I didn't. I would just nip back to my building, which was called Newton, and have my lectures and then go back again to the art department where I just hung out with everybody there. In my final year at college, I met a whole group of artists and poets and performers who were black and we formed a group and uh, applied and received a small grant to uh, create a book of poetry and it was my responsibility in the in the group to go and get this book printed and I went along to this uh, (laughs) Nottingham Art Centre which was this curious place with a Overfriendly staff uh, who looked like hippies, whose residence seemed to be to encourage you to learn things there like photography, screen printing, lithography, etc. Um, as a mean, as a means to actually produce the book, you couldn't just merely hand them the um, the material and they printed it. There was this process, and um, and of course, this was my first exposure to community arts. <laughs> I absolutely loved it there printed the book and in fact they encouraged me to apply for a job which I got um, to operate the Offset Litho there and that's how I started in community arts and whilst I was there uh, I was seven months into it was a year-long contract when um, they brought to my attention this award from Gilbenkin for community artists and um, so I applied for it and got it and um, ended up at a place called Jubilee Arts. Um, Jubilee Arts took me back to, well, pretty close to where I, you know, where I was born in Birmingham, just outside actually. And indeed, when I went for my interview, you still had to be interviewed. Um, It was extraordinary because I went from Birmingham and got on this bus and it went into what was called the black country. And I felt like I was going to an entirely different country 
And regardless of um, the fact that I grew up in Borsal Heath, which is quite an impoverished bit of Birmingham, uh, this was like next level. <laughs> uh, it's quite frightening. But I still took the job. <laughs> and uh, I spent, I believe it was about six years at Jubilee doing photography and working with a, a group of people who pretty much introduced me to an entire different paradigm in terms of um, arts practice. I joined when I was 23, so, you know, things were still forming. I was quite an angry young man, but I think I was angry for the right reasons. I was trying to reconcile being, um, I don't know, I don't want to just simply, in retrospect, try and make stuff up, but I have no doubts that I was feeling quite disenfranchised uh, outside between and betwixt, not part of any particular group. But somehow I felt like I was uh, amongst kindred spirits. There was something about people there that, and they were patient. <laughs> it's where I first met people who were entire uh, workaholics who would just throw themselves into creating stuff, um, engaging with communities, even difficult communities, communities of people who sometimes made it overtly clear that they didn't want you there. Indeed, there were several occasions on particular projects when I was at Jubilee where we were under siege from the community, trapped on a double-decker bus because they'd made it clear that uh, our presence was not welcome. I stayed there for um, six years. Then um, an opportunity came up to be part of an organisation called... Artec, the Arts Technology Centre in London. It was actually seen by my, by my partner who said, this is the perfect job for you, Gary. And I looked at it and I thought, I can't do any of that. She said, no, no, You've, you know, you're adept at using digital technology. You're hungry, enthusiastic. It's working with young students. It's perfect. And I, but I said, but I don't have the necessary qualifications to teach a vocational course. And this job is, and I had to do a double take, this job is £12,000 more in salary than I am currently earning, and it's in London. How can, how can I, this um, lowly person from the West Midlands at Jubilee Arts, possibly apply for this job, one of only two centres in Europe, one in Marseille and one in London, and do this job. Anyway, I decided to apply for it. I was surprised to even get an interview. I was, I was frankly shocked, to tell the truth. Um, but I was pretty relaxed about it because this was all about getting into practice, being interviewed again. And they stipulated and asked for you as part of um, the interview to demonstrate something that you would teach in a class as being indicative of the way that you would approach your teaching practice. And, and so I set about looking at creating an interactive piece of um, an example where you, if you kind of like rolled your mouse over a triangle, square and a circle, then a piece of text would say triangle, square and circle. And I practiced, and I practiced this thing in Birmingham of the course of a couple of weeks. It never worked. There would always be a syntax error. It would never, ever worked. 
my partner Fiona said, look, just tell them what you would do. Well, you know, they just want to know this is an example of what you would teach. You don't have to do it from first principles. I said, nah, of course you do. You have to do it from first principles or else it's cheating. Um, the interview was at four o'clock on the, uh, on the Monday. As, um, early in the morning, I tried it one more time. Different syntax error, didn't work. I went down on the train to London in the town hall in Islington in London. I sat there and it worked. First time it ever, first time it ever worked. And I just carried on with my interview. I didn't, I didn't even break sweat that it worked for the first ever time with no syntax error. <laughs> Each time they asked me a question about, do you have expertise in this area? I'd go, no, I don't, but I'm a really quick learner. And I'm really enthusiastic about this post. And, well, you know, should I be offered this opportunity? I'll just throw my heart and soul into it. And I just left and didn't think anything of it. Got on the train, turned the key at home when I got home. And my partner said, you've got the job. And so that was it. And it took 18 months to actually move to London. And they waited for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, no, they actually didn't wait for me. I went backwards and forwards. So, in fact, what I should have said is that, so for 18 months, I lived separately from my family traveling backwards to Birmingham and I was going back obviously on a Friday and I had a young son who was nine months old who wouldn't come to me because I'd been away the whole week he'd then be comfortable on Sunday and I'd leave again and this went on for a little while and then I started going back um, on the Monday morning which cost 55 pounds which was a huge amount of money back then but it was worth it because I'd spend another extra night and then about a year later, I'd started going back on a Wednesday because I was like, well, why am I working in London? I'm away from my family. I don't see the point of this. And I was just about to move back to Birmingham thinking, well, this was an interesting experiment. Um, at this place which, um, where I'm doing really well, I'm enjoying it. It's an experimental laboratory looking at the creative applications of computers. But there's nothing more important than family. I'm going to go back when my partner got a job at the photographer's gallery <laughs> and we managed to all move down. Happy ending. <laughs> well, I, I, Gary, that's such a tremendously cool and great story for several reasons. And, <laughs> it's and, all true. And, it's all true, actually. Isn't it mad? No, It's the immigrant it story, but in microcosm. Well, microcosm, and I would say the intensity is amped up too because... Um, you had this big curiosity. You came out of the womb with this big curiosity and and you were fortunate to be gifted with a mother who had a big curiosity. And Amazing. To, mm. to, she just fed it. Mm. Yeah, to feed yours. And um, may every child have this, right? Because <laughs> this is the world that we're imagining mm. helping to bring about is exactly that world. Um, not the world that we're living in at the moment for, for many, many people. But the, um, you and I were talking just before we started the recording for the podcast about people asking about your one's career and stuff. And we were both like, no, it wasn't a career. We just stumbled from one thing to another. And there was luck here and opportunity mm. there and something we never imagined, you know, uh, that, that took us forward. So I just want to highlight that for listeners because I, on, although 
your particular story, Gary, is very intense and amazing. Um, it has something in common with a lot of people's stories that they discover themselves through entering into these practices and are driven by their own curiosity and desire. And the world somehow, you know, for many of us makes makes a space or we find a way to make a space for, for ourselves in it, as opposed to... Um, I was a good student and I got all A's and I applied to this degree program and I got the community arts degree and then I got this job and here I am 30 years later. That's not a story that happens in, in real life. So I just wanted to point that out. Well, Carrie, I know I met you back in the Jubilee days, so I don't even know what year that was, but I'm thinking it was the late 80s, if I'm not mistaken. It, um, yes, it will be close to that. Yeah. So uh, we've known each other for a long time mm. and we've seen a lot of things change because at that point when my then partner and I came over to the UK and we were consulting with groups in, in the West Midlands, in, in, in London and, and so forth, we, yeah. we had quite a few good working relationships then. Thatcher hadn't really taken control of everything yet. You know, in London, there was still money from the Greater London Council. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of political and administrative changes came down. The miners' strike was kind of a catalyst for a lot mm. of that. A lot of a lot of political and structural changes came down that really changed That's right. uh, the situation for people. So that you could say that that was sort of the flowering of the community arts movement that had started there in the late '60s and went through that late '80s period. And then there was a contraction, and a lot of other things happened after that. But we we coincided in kind of point of expansion and it was I'm so, I'm so glad that we did but I, I want to ask you to fast forward a little bit mm. and, and tell people something about just one or two projects that you're working on these days so that they can see what the, what the point of that story you've gotten to now is and then as we're talking we'll fill in you know uh, along the way I would say that um, there are many aspects of even the period of time that I had at Jubilee, which still resonate with my working practices. In fact, they almost certainly do. Um, they may be modified somewhat in so much as um, uh, perhaps I should perhaps begin to try and highlight what I think some of those attributes are. I am still person-focused. I'm still very much... Uh, always engaged in trying to ensure that those questions of authorship are questioned all the time and that the greatest amount of opportunities in place for those people that I work with to actually be not just hands-on physically, tangibly um, engaged with the project, but to be part of the kind of critical shaping of it at its very inception so that uh, there's so many projects which are conceived, which are, are kind of like uh, ready-made, ready-cooked with a, 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 almost a, an expectation of the outcome in place and just seemingly, you know, um, uh, an emphasis on trying to create engagement, but actually not questioning that whether the project should even exist in, it, in, in the first place. Um, I'm particularly proud that, I may not say this word properly, but obsolescence, is that the word? Ob obsolescence? Yeah, I've made myself, you know, my, my projects, they work 
if I, I am not necessary and required by the end of the project. They're not vanity projects. They're projects which still, um, in terms of, and I should probably describe what the projects are, but they're with largely, um, and I don't be careful about the terms because I don't like them myself sometimes, marginalised peripheral communities. They're certainly disenfranchised communities. They're uncomfortable communities. They tend to be those are from African descent who, who are stateless and homeless. I like to engage with them. I, <laughs> you see what I mean? I think their stories and their contribution and their, their engagement, they are worthy of an opportunity to tell their story. Each time I do a project, I grow as a person. I work between what you might call the white cube gallery space, the verified space of the Tate Galleries, Whitechapel Serpentine, these prestigious festivals, Documenta in Cassel and New Blanche in Toronto. I work between there, what I'd call um, boots on the ground, sort of social justice in favelas in inner city areas of um, Kampala, Jinja in Uganda, Ahmedabad, India, Bogota, in some scary places. <laughs> I like to move between them almost cross-fertilising the ideas between them. And by that, I mean, I like to challenge what's happening in the white cube space in terms of making those spaces more permeable. Sometimes it's just the sheer aesthetics and working practices. And the um, it's not to do with the quality of the output. I don't know if I can articulate this properly, but rather more to do with the determination, the intent to make a product that everybody's really quite proud of, that that can that has some legacy and shape. And I like to take that into areas where people aren't normally asked to engage and think about in that way. I like to create spaces of, um, in both places, spaces of what I call spaces of ambiguity and complexity. And that's because <laughs> I'm constantly um, challenging myself about, do I, do I think this? Do I think that? Indeed, I think I wake up the next day and I'm, I'm thinking about something in an entirely different way or I have a slightly different perspective or I'm open to a different reading of something. It almost feels to me like I'm engaged in a process of creating... They're like polymorphic, sort of like shifting, changing constellations of where you're looking at um, issues, spaces of identity and culture, but there are entry points to, to look at it different perspectives which but those shift and change all the time and challenge you to reassess and um and it requires um it's not about compromise but it requires a reassessment on the part of the people who engaged in both the viewing and who are being viewed to be part of that process so it's about these shifting intersections and i'm actually surprised that people fund me sometimes because <laughs> i I pretty much say this every single time when prior to a commission or whatever. It's like, so what are you going to do? How are you going to work with these communities or with this collection? I should have said, I work, I've been working for decades now with archival material, objects, ephemera, personal collections, but in a way that I describe is a sort of active dynamic archive. So it's not just merely bringing it to life. 
it's sort of recognizing and understanding that again this polymorphic form is shifting and changing that it's you're adding to it taking it away it's a living entity and so it's it's intended to in a sense embody the kind of blurred boundaries between audiences authorship and participation you see and indeed some of this some of the things that I make these installations they are inert if you don't interact with them that doesn't mean to say you have to press a button i've moved past that that was like there's nothing wrong with that but that was like 1993 when you pressed a button and you got some response um it's not about being more sophisticated but basically it's about creating these living environments which react and respond to the participants within them and the kind of engagements that take place and of course this is a wealth of material i mentioned in terms of archival material ephemeral and personal collections well give us give us um just some flat description of um not that you can do flat description but give us some some just description of two projects and let's pick one that took place in a museum or a white gallery box or a document uh, environment or at the Tate or whatever i don't, i know you have a picture on your website of you and in like a 18th century brocade outfit with a wig maybe that one but whatever one you pick and then give us a description of like working in a favela or in one of those situations where you're not in an art space per se but you're creating something with people just so that listeners understand cuz cuz i feel like i'm really getting a clear picture of the values mm. and aesthetics but i don't know what you do <laughs> that's a good question and every project is actually different but i should be able to illustrate this and it's a really good question um i should say that um i do everything the hard way it'd be so sensible to have a boilerplate template that i just pick up in one place and do it in another and get paid and move on but oh no i have to start with the research you know it's all about the specificity of place which is true if you see what i mean and embed myself in that place for a period of time where i can at least get some meaningful insight i can't fully understand or or uh, want to say understand appreciate the whole nuances and complexities particularly where language is in a different language in place and that would be the case when i work in brazil for instance in the favelas so a project that probably illustrates this really well is the transforming lives beyond text project that i did in providencia uh, a favela in in rio in brazil providencia is one of the oldest favelas uh, what i did was to at first work with um a school called spectaculo which um was is an extraordinary space which um enables young people who are outside of the formal educational system to be engaged with creative practice and at the point when i started working with spectaculo they'd been doing work with theatrical design amongst other things music um the known kind of stuff and i was invited to uh, explore the digital and um what i came up with was um devising a project where those young people could be introduced to the archival 
uh, collection of photographs about Providencia, where they could research and be engaged in the process of researching and um, oral history with their peers and um, parents and carers, where they could explore other aspects of Rio. They live in a favela. They'd never been to Ipanema or Copacabana. So we went and scared people there, took a whole group frequently down into these other um, areas where the unwashed <laughs> are not normally supposed to go. Created original soundtracks. They made news stories. But significantly introduces them this idea of performance installation, this idea of creating projections and sounds directly on the facade of the environment and spaces that they live in, so that um, they were directly implicated in it, both its um, execution and reception. But in a way, there's another layer because of who I am and my interests. They had to improvise it and do it in real time. So, what does this mean? <laughs> I'll try to describe it. It means that there's a repository of media that they create of images, sounds and text that lives in a program, which is actually made for VJing in clubs. Connected to that are a series of what call controllers. Um, some of this is familiar to people. They're like uh, MIDI keyboards. They just look like regular keyboards or they may be like drum pads or other sensors and actuators. Things which trigger and enable um, a haptic physical interaction to take place. And then this is set up in such a way you then have to play it. And I just love this notion of the fact that um, you have this material, which of course they curate and they gather and put together, but it doesn't come alive yet. It doesn't come into being until they play. They have to play. If you just sit there and look at it, it'll just sit there and there'll be nothing, nothing will happen. There's no button, there's no play button. There's nothing to play. Its entire being, its entire sense of um, coming into being can only happen with the interaction of a number of users. So I set it up in a way that um, you can also collaborate. So not one, it can be one or more persons can actually performatively create this audiovisual playback. What I found is that, as usual, something that uh, takes, you know, 10 minutes to describe, took 30 seconds for them to get, and not only understand, to extend in ways that when I looked over their shoulder, I'd be constantly going, how did you do that? Well, that's amazing. That's incredible. And the level of dexterity and sophisticated visual and uh, not just auditory, but conceptual understanding on the part of people who don't have any formal education is remarkable. And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to romanticise or be idealistic about, oh gosh, if you take people from the favelas and you give them the tools in the right environment, they can make great, great art and great work. <laughs> but they almost can, <laughs> in my experience. And I've done it time and time and time again. I have watched... Quite literally, um, I might, for instance, in my introduction in the workshops, talk about juxtaposing two images and how you can change the meaning of just 
changing one image next to another, they get it. They absolutely understand. Add a sound to that. Where does that take it? If, is this sound related to that object? Or is it in opposition? Are we creating a tension? Is there some dissonance? I may use those words or I may not. I will use those words because then I'll explain what those words are because they're quite capable of understanding them and articulating them. They will then go on to actually put that into practice and create pieces. The most extraordinary thing happens when you're in those workshops. You look across and the peer kind of like learning between them as they share share tips and go, oh, if you do this, you can create a mask which masks this bit of the image. If you do this, this sound stops this other sound or this other sound goes on top of it. Oh, if you do this, this happens. It's, you know, that thing about more than the sum of the parts. I may have initiated it and created this environment, but they're running with it. It's completely independent of me. It's, I can't have conceived of that. I kind of put that in place. It's entirely unique to their experiences. They have, it is their material that they're moulding and shaping and sculpting. They have ownership over it. They decide when it starts and ends and the value of it, whether they want to show it or don't show it. They have absolute, complete control over it. I'm not, I'm not judging it. And um, I find it absolutely invigorating. It keeps me alive. It's important to say that this is a project that is co-conceived with uh, Professor Paul Heritage at Queen Mary University in, um, in London. It's both of us together have devised this. And I think much of the way that the success of that project and its methodology and working is, is through what we've both brought to it in terms of his own experiences as somebody uh, head of English and drama and his own working practices and the dialogue between us the fact that we both enjoy this idea of um, creating spaces spaces of pleasure, of hedonism. We can talk for a long time about creating spaces of seduction. So where people might be dealing with very serious issues, it has to be pleasurable. Well, it doesn't have to be, but we like making pleasurable spaces. And importantly, uh, when I was describing, for instance, that the... Um, the processes of that group creating the material. Once one of those um, projects happened in um, Providencia, I then did it in Sao Paulo, and they built upon that material, and they had as their repository of media the stuff that was in Rio. And then I took the project to Bahia. And then it happened in Salisbury in the UK, and then it happened in Gateshead in another impoverished bit of the UK. So, strangely enough, the young people were building upon and interpreting and responding to material from other young people around the world. It wasn't in real time, but that is not to undermine the value of it. They were quite layered um, uh, pieces of work, which weren't just superficial, but enabled when you dug underneath them to reveal even more kind of um, material. And how does, that, how does that relate to the white cube space? Well, well hang on a sec. Let, let me, let's just talk about what you've said for a minute, and then I totally want to hear about the white cube <laughs> yeah, space. Yeah, sure. Um, it's, 
when you mentioned Paul Heritage, mm. it answered some of my questions because I know him yeah. because he contributed to the uh, anthology the that we did, community exactly mm. community culture and globalization in um, 2002. And I was thinking, Gary, do you speak Portuguese? And now, and now, I mean, Paul is so grounded in in Brazil that and I was going to ask you a Freire mm, and get into it and a, yeah. And of course, you know that's that's the grounding for for his work, Boal and yeah. and and Ferry too. Mm. Um, it sounds so fun what you're doing, and it sounds no, it's incredible. So amazing, and I, I love the way that that um, you have successive iterations with the same material. You know that mm. the, a group of kids works on it, and then um, they interact with another group of kids mm. in there. And, and their stuff and so on. It's so great. But now, before we go to the white cube, let me uh, just highlight a couple questions there because I really hear how much community arts values and methods and practices have informed the work that you've continued to do. That's like this in collaboration with members of communities under stress in 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 faraway places. You know that through line is there of people speaking their own words with their own voice, whether it's speaking or you know visual imagery or music. The the the, the principle is the same. Yeah. But now you've, from what I saw on your website and stuff, you've gotten all these commissions from you know, all the stuff at the Tate Modern. You've been to these gigantic festivals and stuff. And I want to hear you say not only what happens, because you were about to describe an example of a project, mm. but also how do you feel that work is connected to or descends from or relates to this community arts grounding that you came out of? Yeah, that's also a very good question. And in fact, I do wonder, because a lot of this is... Uh, we were talking about it earlier. I, I don't orchestrate this. Um, but I do move a little bit, like when I said earlier that I was a, the odd one out. Well, supposedly the odd one out, but the odd one out because actually I move between different sectors and fields so fluidly. And I do it in a way that um, I actually enjoy I love cross-fertilization. I love trying to join the dots between different sectors and fields. And I think what happened was later on in life, I actually recognized that, that that's what I was doing. I think before I was just doing it intuitively. I was moving between the black art groups, which is the, you know, the um, formative sort of group of um, black artists who are the, the vanguard of um, looking to ensure that there's a recognition of the contribution of black artists within in Britain who are close friends, who I work with. I, I work with um, within kind of like design and technology groups, though I'm constantly trying to ensure that they're not just dealing with bells and whistles and they're actually thinking about the content and the consequences of what they're doing. I love working in the social sciences uh, I have a lot of, do a lot of work with places like Invisible Dust and Arts Catalysts, which you can see comes from my early interest in science um, that I absolutely, you know, that's a, that's a field that I'm as passionate about. I actually like, scarily, I do like um, some of the bureaucracy and policy of um, working with the 
British Council and the Arts Council and all that, I just consider it to be um, a bit of a challenge, if you see what I mean, in trying to uh, get them to to work in a, a particular way that's more sympathetic and open and amenable to communities of interest who don't normally have any access. So I'm always trying to think up um, innovative projects or work with people within those organisations who are perhaps maybe isolated in thinking up really interesting projects which which challenge how those institutions work. And I think that comes from not just community arts practice but the work with the Institute of International Visual Arts that I went on to work with where Stuart Hall was the chair who was, who talked a great deal about diversifying the mainstream and the different strategies that needed to happen in parallel in order to create meaningful and significant change. So I probably lost your question somewhere in there because <laughs> I'm talking, but you asked me. Well, well, one of, the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because you're one of the people I know who have such a developed practice in both places, right? Um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, strangely enough, I've shied away until very recently over the last year. I normally don't put myself forward as a kind of like the artist artist. If anything, I remember going for a particular commission and the people interviewed me on the panel were shocked. They kept on saying, we are perplexed. You're working on these remarkable projects, but you never use the tense as if you're the lead artist. And you always talk about these communities and the achievements and the outcomes that came. And the, where do you begin and those communities end? It was a really good question. I hadn't even, it hadn't even occurred to me. The way that I, di- I dialogue normally is just, that's at the forefront of my mind, as opposed to, I'm Gary Stewart, give me, that, I don't even know. You see, I can't even form a sentence. <laughs> that does it. Because <laughs> it wouldn't work. They would give me the gig. Um, I think a lot of this is just, in terms of your question of how come I continue to work, and I'm still getting even higher profile project in the so-called white cube space. I think some of this is just sheer luck. And by that, I mean, not lucky that it was me, but I think it's a confluence of things. I think those institutions, agencies and organisations are a lot more permeable and receptive to particular um, ideas and method ways of working which have been part of our, our, our vocabulary for like decades. Sometimes they give it a different word, like what do they call it at Serpentine or what do they call it? Not interaction programme or... They won't use the word community arts ever. Never, unless it's part of some study that they can just kind of do and dispense with and then move on. There'll be some entire different, you know, uh, at a Tate Modern, where I've done several projects, a lot of projects, and I did, I did a year-long project at, at Tate Exchange. That's precisely what Tate Exchange is at Tate Modern. It's a double-edged sword at Tate Exchange. On the one hand, it's a sneaky way for the Tate to commandeer and use their status to have people have their projects in there without spending a lot of money and just providing space. On the other hand, it it is an extraordinary um, opportunity for people to create work in a place that has a footfall. I can't even remember how many numbers go in and out of Tate Exchange. So do do you pass up the opportunity to potentially engage with an audience even if it's a a slight percentage of that who are curious enough to question their 
their idea of uh, migrant communities or uh, disenfranchised people or enable them to look at disability or race or well-being in an entirely different way. I, at the moment, I think it's worth it. And, and it may be a price to pay on my part. And indeed, I have some friends who I hugely respect their perspective and point of view who wouldn't touch the tape with a barge pole. I've, I've curated several times at the tape and I did a, a project there and I invited one artist and they said, Tate, no way. Funded by BP, etc., British Petroleum. I'm not. I don't like. I don't like the people who, um, who the um, who fund the Tate. I don't like their values. But we respectively, you know, remain friends. If you see what I mean, and they understand why, at this present moment, <laughs> I still work with institutions like that, and I hundred percent respect them as well. I, I'm not trying to do. Um, disservice to myself if you see what I mean and just go super modest but I I do genuinely believe that the opportunities that are being presented to me on such a frequent basis are a basis of an alignment of so many different things that in terms of that sector I mean you can just see it on the bookshelves I've actually got some of the books I can't see them from here from where I'm sitting but there are countless books now on so-called practice to do with um you know working with um um, communities in a way that, say, Alfred Ajar used to do, or still does. So, you know, a well-known artist, but working with communities. I guess I'm still about trying to... I can't help... Um, you know, I'm motivated by trying to, in some shape or form, and I hope I'm not... I hope I'm not kind of, like, kidding myself, enable some kind of shift in those places, the kind of butterfly effect that might lead to some seismic shift down... Down the, down the end somewhere. Yeah, I mean, Gary, let me just say, I say more power to you. I mean, I've been about as, as snobby about uh, what they call social practice as anyone could be because <laughs> I was quoting Rick Lowe as saying social practice is the gentrification of community arts, um, which it often is. But what is the dividing line there? And the dividing line is, are they just borrowing the methods and techniques but mm. not the politics and values or are they taking the whole ball of wax, the methods, the techniques, the politics, the informing values in a way that doesn't distort mm. them or just commodify them into a new venue to, as you say, see if you can catalyze some change in that venue. And I say, yes, Gary, more power to you. And the other thing I say to these people with the money, because I respect the position too, I do. And there's limits to like, you know, where if I was going for funding, probably limits to where I would go. But point me to the clean money. Could you point me to the checkbook over there, which, you know, the, the who was it who said behind every great fortune is a great crime? You know, even the public funds, I mean, are are somehow distorted by the other things that are public priorities that are antithetical to what those cultural development funds are supposed to be accomplishing. So... I'm suspicious of purity. Yeah. I'm, I'm suspicious of the notion that you can somehow keep yourself from being contaminated by the world. I think we're all contaminated. And then the question is, what do we do with that? You know, what do we do with the power that accidentally or on purpose comes to us from, from, from these institutions? And I'm, I just want to say I'm impressed with 
with how you are navigating it, and I'm I'm impressed with what I see you doing. So, if a vote of confidence from me counts, you may accept that. Don't blush. You know you're one of my mentors. I've had, I have. <laughs> there are like six significant people, maybe seven, over the course of thirty-five years, who've shaped how I work. And sometimes it's not to do with the length of time that I spent with them. It's not as simple as that. And you're actually one of them. And and sometimes it's not like I even like them anymore. Yeah, the Institute thing is really fascinating to me because I think it's important, and I will talk about White Cube Space project, but I think also when I talk about when I talk about moving in between all these different sectors, I basically if I got out my um my contact list because of my age and the trajectory of my peers and all this kind of stuff, I basically know senior curators in huge places of festivals, festival directors, in a way that um, it doesn't mean anything is automatic, but I, I can kind of have a conversation with many people um, that has, takes it to a significant level, even that many people wouldn't even, they wouldn't even get through, they wouldn't even get to them, if you see what I mean. So I'm, I am conscious of that. And this has been developed over several decades. And again, I haven't orchestrated it. Uh, I haven't overtly done that. Just all happened together at the same time. And there have been, there've been casualties as well. This is a, it's a okay, it's the, it's the art world. But by that, I mean, it does consume people. And there have been some good people who this environment has just chewed up. People who've wanted to do good work in this space who the institutions have been unkind to and they've, you know, either exploited mentally or otherwise and um, ground them down in a way that they've not been able to fulfil their potential in the way that they, they've meant to. So, yeah, I can get out my contact list and I can point to various people I'm, that I'm really close with who are representing <laughs> Britain, the UK, sorry, UK in the... Venice Biennale, Sonia Boyce, who were directors of various things, but there are others who've fallen by the wayside as well. And I, I actually don't forget them, if you see what I mean. I do, I do. And, uh, you know, I'm honoured to be considered one of your mentors. And I'm, uh, the reason I'm honoured is because you use your power for good. So <laughs> as long as you keep on that path, my friend, I'm happy. But, you know, we're coming to the end of our hour, and I want to ask you another question. Um, I'm going to give listeners a link to your website, and your website is called dubmorphology.net. Um, um, and that will be on the Meow website. We'll put, we'll put those links there. But for, for those of us out in the hinterlands of America, what is dub morphology? What do those two words mean? That's a good question. Okay, so dub morphology as an entity is myself, Gary Stewart, and Trevor Mattison, who's a remarkable sound designer who does a lot of what well, he does all the sound design for an artist called John O'Confra, who's known around the world. Um, both of them emerged from a group called the Black Audio Film Collective. Dumbophology has been going for about like 15 years, myself and Trevor. The word dub itself, <laughs> see if I can remember, the word dub itself is like a, it's like a, a, a genre of, um, 
of music which emerged from reggae in the late 60s and early 70s closely associated with the idea of the version so the you had an a record and on one side of the record there'd be a vocal these are reggae records and if you turned it over and played the other side there'd be no vocal that'd be called the dub or the version but rather than just take the vo- the vocal off and just let it run um these extraordinary sound engineers and artists in Jamaica would create an uh, an entirely new manifestation of that track and um the area of dub that interests myself in Trevor in terms of dub morphology and the word morphology is this idea of um dub in the analog world if you keep on dubbing something then the next copy from one medium to another medium indeed there's a, a significant change of one kind or another or there's a residual amount of material left elsewhere and this this in a way is intended to kind of articulate our interests Trevor and I which is when we engage with you as artists we are creating a particular version that is does not come with any authenticity or truth we wouldn't even claim to have but rather is a just merely an interpretive version that may in fact bear no actual resemblance to the the very thing that initiated and excited us in the first place strange enough a lot of people buy into this <laughs> um so this manifests itself not just in terms of um music and visuals but indeed we've worked with um cultural theorists we worked with Stuart Hall before he died and and several others in different fields interesting enough there are theorists who love the idea of um we'll take their material we'll work with them and we'll reinterpret it in an entirely different way that may just leave residual traces that may be read in an entirely different way so it's not an entire rereading but more kind of a reframing of that so yeah that's dub morphology which is probably a terrible explanation but i suppose pract what it means in practical terms is that uh literally means that we we create environments and spaces for different outcomes of possibilities of thoughts and ideas Yeah and I'm I mean two words are popping up for me that have come up before in these podcasts as kind of contested but um understood one being co-creation I mean everything that you're saying is co-created everything that you're describing is co-created you're not seeing yourself like you said as the author and everybody else is kind of your paintbrush or your instrument you know but there's that dialogue that that generates co-creation and the other word that keeps coming up is emergence that you know you set the conditions for something to be created something to happen and then you're you're present to what emerges in all mm. its complexity and all of its truth and all of its potential contradiction and yeah. that's what life is so you know when people try to freeze it into one thing mm. that's that's not life anymore yeah and this has been such a good lively conversation i had so much fun talking to you i hope our listeners enjoy it too we need to do it again sometime gary i'm so grateful to you no, for doing this well, thank, you. thank you so so much now that you've heard the podcast you can go to the website to find out more details including references and links
The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.